and welcome to the Diz Unplugged Disneyland Edition, episode 481 for the week of August 9th, 2015. I'm your host for this segment and resident Disney historian for the Diz Unplugged, Michael Bowling. Walt Disney and those who built Disneyland had their roots in filmmaking. Entering Disneyland is similar to entering a theater. The attraction posters provide a sneak preview as to what is inside. The names on the windows of Main Street are the credits for some of the many people who contributed to Disneyland. Typically, the inscriptions on the windows appear as fictional businesses and often refer to a hobby of or the contribution made by the person honored. Disneyland has also dedicated windows in Frontierland, Adventureland, and Toontown. In my series, Windows on Main Street, we learn about the people honored on these windows who dedicated their lives to making Disneyland the happiest place on earth for all of us. For many guests of Disneyland, Walt Disney World and other Disney destinations, the most memorable part of their visit is the friendliness and helpfulness of the cast members who work to make Walt's vision come true every day. In March 1955, Walt Disney and Dick Nunes hired Van Arsdale France and charged him with the responsibility of translating Walt's vision of creating happiness into an employee training program, which became the University of Disneyland, today called Disney University. Joining me today to share his memories of Van France is Doug Lip. Doug mentored under Van France and knew him for many years. Doug helped create the first international version of Disney University for Tokyo Disneyland and went on to lead the training team of Disney University at the Disney corporate headquarters. Doug is also the author of the book, Disney U, How Disney University Develops the World's Most Engaged, Loyal, and Customer-Centric Employees. Doug, welcome to the Diz Unplugged. Thanks, Michael. I'm really pleased to have have the opportunity to chat about Van's contributions to the happiest place on earth. What a great lead-in. There was one correction, though. Van mm-hmm. actually hired Dick Nunes. <laughs> really? Did he? Okay. Well, good. That's good. I'm glad you've corrected that. <laughs> so, now, how did you first meet Van? When I was a college intern at Long Beach State, before the college intern program even became official, one of my professors had a connection at the Magic Kingdom Club, MKC, and I got to work for uh, six months as a volunteer at MKC, and it was to help small companies create orientation programs for their employees. And so I got to meet Van for the first time because he and the university staff were putting together this program for small business owners. So it was a completely happenstance, but it was a wonderful twist of fate. Now, Dick Nunes, who's the former chairman of Walt Disney Attractions, once described Van as a combination of Jiminy Cricket, Mary Poppins, and an angry Donald Duck. So is this an accurate description of Van France? Most definitely. I mean, much like Dick has described and, and other folks that, uh, that I, that I've known for years and also I was reminded when I was writing Disney U is that Van was kind of the moral compass of the organization. And one of the things that, that Van said was that leaders and managers are going to come and go, but I'm determined to keep Walt's dream alive and his vision alive. And he was 
the, the person that would keep you on track. He would call you on the carpet regardless of your rank in the organization. So he was brutally honest but had a heart of gold. And so he would lead you down the right path, but if you pushed back or gave him too many excuses, then he'd light up like an angry Donald Duck and let you know in no uncertain terms that you were wrong. <laughs> so now how did he um, come to Disney? He'd been a consultant in a variety of, of uh, factories, frankly, uh, during the war. He had worked in airplane factories, He'd even worked in a Brazier factory. And one of the uh, executives that was in charge of operations at Disneyland called him and said, hey, I want to get you involved in this project, invited Van up to the, the studios. They met with Walt. And as you mentioned in your intro, by the by the spring of 1955, early 1955, uh, Van was on board as a as a 40 something man in his second career in a totally different environment to help. Walt create the happiest place on earth. And what I think is fascinating is that Walt was a brilliant leader, as everyone knows, and he knew his strengths, and he knew where he didn't have his strengths. And he knew that he and his Imagineers could create this great edifice called Disneyland, but they had to populate it with cast members who really cared to be ambassadors of happiness. And that's what Van was charged with doing, was getting these folks that didn't know a thing about theme parks, because there hadn't been any theme parks Get this this crew of California kids up and running and ready for the show. Yeah, now, this seems like a really daunting task. I mean, you know, you're being given the task by Walt Disney of training Disneyland employees to create the happiest place on earth. So how did Van take this challenge on? You know, it's interesting. That's a really good question, Michael. And Van was brilliant in due diligence. And he spent a lot of time at the studio really getting to know the culture of the studio of Walt Disney, the values, because what he, meaning Van, put in place was a program that was values-based. It wasn't just slap a bunch of flip charts together or presentations and just throw it at employees. He really took some time to assess what Disney as an organization was all about, and I think he did a brilliant job of coalescing what he observed into what eventually became the new higher orientation program. And just a way to sum that up is that of all the interviews that I did when I was researching for Disney, and these were men and women that I worked with, many that were many levels higher than I when I was in the company, but as a group, they said things like Van had the uncanny ability to articulate the complex and other things like, to this day, I'm amazed by how Van made the inherently complex so simple. He, he took theoretical message and messages and made them digestible, but he also shared a, a, a brilliant wit, just like Walt Disney. And so Van took that fun and frivolous attitude that, that Walt had, meaning let's, let's have a good time, work hard, play hard. And he took that into the classroom, into the, into the learning room. And he was a master at channeling. One of the great quotes of Walt Disney is that laughter is no enemy to learning. So he had an engaging, fun style, and he had a team of people that did the same. And so, therefore, when new hires came into training, it was an infectious environment. So it sounds like he was a, a sort of a natural-born teacher and a natural showman. Absolutely. In fact, he was more showman than administrator by his own admission. He didn't like budgets and meetings and all the stuff that goes along with maintaining stuff. He was a great startup guy, and he was a great motivator. 
Now, I remember when you, in your presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum in 2013, you told a story about Van France that he would walk the park carrying a camera without film, and he would just take photos of people um, to make them smile. So what was his reasoning for that? Well, that really, that came uh, courtesy of Jim Cora. And of course, as, as you remember, Jim and I gave a presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. And, and Jim, of course, started his career at the park as an hourly employee and rose to be the chairman of Disneyland International. But when he worked, first of all, for Van starting the university and then later in Jim's career asking Van to help him create universities in Japan and in Paris, Jim recounted this story. He said, I, I was, it was uncanny how Van could connect with people. And he told me the example of Van would oftentimes walk the park, just like Walt Disney. So you see the connection between Walt and Van already. Van liked to get in touch with people, whether it was guests or cast members. So he would go on stage and interact with guests. He would go backstage, interact with cast members on a break. And he had the camera. And the camera was a natural bridge to reduce inhibitions of people. Plus, his own style of communication helped reduce inhibitions of people. But Jim said one day, I, w I was asking Van, so what do you do with all the, the pictures you take? And Van said, <laughs> half the time, this camera's not even loaded with film. I just use it as a prop to get people to open up to me. But what was really important, I think, Michael, is that Van took the information he got, both from cast members and guests, whether that information was complimentary or whether it was some kind of a criticism of being an employee or being a guest, and he filtered it up the management chain to give everybody the true feedback he was getting from the front lines. And you're right, that is very similar to what Walt Disney did. He would walk the parks and just sometimes observe, observe how people were getting in line and how they were interacting, what, what, what they did do and what they didn't do. And he would, he was also known for doing good show, bad show tours of Disneyland that, and he would lead right. his executives on them. So it, it does sound very similar to what um, Van did. So now Van is the one who originated terms that we're all very familiar with now, like um, on stage, backstage, good show, bad show. What was um, his reasoning for starting those terms? Well, there's a combination of, of people that, that put all these things together. And certainly we, we talked about Dick Nunes earlier and, and really without Dick Nunes' enthusiasm as Van's protege early in 1955 when they created the first new hire orientation and had it blessed by Roy Disney and some of the executives of the company and some of the vendors. The, the en energy and enthusiasm that Dick had in his operational expertise really is what so many people would say is the backbone of, of why Disney University succeeded. Um, the, the verbiage is a combination of Van's brilliance, Walt Disney's showmanship, and Dick's understanding of operations. And so Van would be the first one to say, well, it wasn't me, it was the team, or it wasn't me, it was Walt. That was typical Van. But the idea is that how do you convey to this new group of employees what this theme park is all about. And so they made sure that everybody understood that we're in the business of show business and why not be innovative? In fact, I, I talk about in, in the book Disney U, and I know that you have some questions about this we can talk about later on, but, but Van talked about what he considered to be the four vital values or circumstances that, that allowed the Disney University to come to be and then also to be so successful for so many years. And one of those things was Walt gave 
Van the freedom to be creative. Walt liked creative people, and he said, Van, you're, you're in charge of this. I want you to make this engaging, fun, and creative. And therefore, Van took the, the leash, so to speak, and produced the concept of good show, bad show, on stage, backstage, and all the, the verbiage that so many millions, literally, of cast members and guests have been exposed to over the years. Well, why don't we get into the Vans for Circumstances or Values? And, and can you tell our listeners what those are? Because I know those were the, you wrote in your book, those are the cornerstone of Disney University. Yeah, it's interesting. Van, um, again, was, was able to grasp the core values of Walt Disney and the Walt Disney Company and create the original orientation program and then ultimately the Disney University, which didn't come along until 1963. Van in 1962 was brought back into the company. He'd left for a while to be an outside consultant. So he started in 55 and then he left and came back at, at the seven year mark at Dick Nunes's request. And Van found that the training program that he and Dick had originated in 55 was really no longer relevant. So he kind of went back to the drawing board and he realized that we have to have a relevant program that reflects the, the values of the company. And so his assessment was that there are four values that really helped create and perpetuate employee training at Disneyland and ultimately Disney World and really every Disney theme park and resort around the world. And those four values, I'll list them up first, and then I can dive into each one individually. But they'd start off with innovate, which means be creative, take risks. Innovate and then come support. You want to have leadership support. Heck, Walt Disney hired him and said, I want you to train people so you don't get much more support than that. And ultimately, Dick Nunes supported him dramatically. Innovate, support, and then let's educate people. The power of a knowledgeable workforce is undeniable, and let's constantly learn. And then you've, so you've got innovate, support, educate, and then finally, the component we've talked about already multiple times is let's have fun while we're doing it. Let's entertain, which everybody knows the concept of edutainment, and Walt Disney would say, we're going to educate our guests. They're just not going to know it because they're having so much fun. And so Van took that same concept with cast members. Let's have an engaging, fun, enjoyable educational experience as opposed to a dull, boring, shut-your-eyes-and-go-to-sleep lecture that so many of us have put up with in, in classes elsewhere. So can you give us an example? Let's pretend we are new cast members. What would, what would it be like our first day there with Van? How would he conduct the session? Well, whether it was Van or a fellow cast member, I mean, all the people that worked with Van, for example, Jim Cora would say that it was all about the experiential approach and, and they, they created things like spring tonics. Every spring they had these refresher courses, motivational courses for even existing employees and, and they had people sitting in director's chairs and it was, a, it's a very engaging, engaging environment. So it wasn't just sit down and get lectured to, it was experiential approaches. It was having fun. It was making sure that everything that was done in the training room reflected the reality of the front lines. And that's the key is that when Van came back and did an assessment of the, of the orientation program, he saw some disconnects. For example, 
cast members may or may not go to training. It was kind of hit and miss. And then when they get to the front lines, maybe an elder statesman on the front lines might say, well, I don't care what you just learned in orientation. The reality is completely different. Well, that's already a waste of time. So Van was brilliant in that. He brought along guys like Jim Cora, who knew about operations. They worked on the front lines. And so he turned them into trainers, and he gave them communications courses and leadership courses and presentation courses. So that brought credibility back to the training team as opposed to having a bunch of trainers who never left the ivory tower, so to speak, and didn't know what was going on on the front lines. So that by itself was massively innovative. And quite frankly, Michael, a lot of companies to this day, and I consult with companies around the world, still don't get that component. Their educational team is in a vacuum, and their operational team doesn't connect with them. Right, exactly. I know that when you said how he had the organizational support from the top down, and I'm thinking of places I've worked at where they, they started these training programs to change the culture and all that. But when you, if we didn't have the buy-in at the very top, they all failed completely. Precisely. Yep. Yeah. And so, the, the support, I mean, innovate, there's so many different ways that, that Van innovated, but again, the way that he innovated was to get to the front lines. One, one example, one of the guys that I write about in, in Disney U, Daryl Metzger, who was my boss in Japan when we started the Disney University in Tokyo Disneyland, um, he remembers when he was the manager of the university, Van coming in, and I write about this in the book. He said, Van came in and said, what's wrong with all the pictures that we have in the university? And, and Daryl said, well, I don't know what he's talking about. And he said, look at all these wonderful pictures we have. They have these beautiful cast members that are dancing. Maybe they're the kids of the kingdom or they're, they're helping kids getting on and off attractions. He said, they're all on stage cast members. And if you look at your orientation makeup of the new hires coming in, how many of them work backstage? How many of them work on a graveyard shift in the warehouse or they're scrubbing pots at three in the morning? What do you think we're sending them as a message about their value? Gosh, you know, you're not valuable enough to even have a picture of a backstage person up on the university wall. That sets a pretty negative tone, doesn't it? And this is because Van, again, in his innovative way, had gone out and touched bases with people, and he realized that the university was out of touch. He said, let's change these pictures out. And he said, let's also change the order of orientation. Most of these people coming in for orientation are worried about one thing, and that's about how they're going to look in their costume. And we don't take them to costuming until the end of the day. Therefore, during all of orientation, their minds are elsewhere. Let's reverse the order of orientation. Let's put orientation with costuming at the beginning of the day so people get that out of the way. Then they're going to be more relaxed and they're going to absorb more of what we're teaching them. How brilliant is that? It was absolutely it free. It's very <laughs> insightful. I mean, so he was really able to put himself in the place of the cast members. That's like, the key. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he could connect. This was well before social media days, and everybody that I talked to said on fam would be all over social media, but he was able to connect even without the technology that we enjoy today. Yeah. Now, so now, how, you know, there's a lot of the, the jobs that are, there's a lot of routine to them. You know, the Jungle Cruise skippers, which everybody sees as the job to have, it's, that's really very repetitive. It's the same spiel every few minutes. Um, you know, cast members are answering the same questions over and over again, right. hour after hour, day after day, or, 
you know, the cast members stay calm as guests complain that the closure of a favorite attraction has ruined their vacation. How did Van motivate them and inspire them to always see every Jungle Cruise as a fresh first-time experience or to have that grace under pressure or to ask this, answer that question as if it's the very first time you've been asked it? Yeah. Well, again, it's always about organizational culture and values, and organizational culture and values always, always, always start at the top of the company. And this was begun by Walt Disney. In fact, Tom Eastman, who started his career as a cast member, hourly cast member at Disneyland, and rose to be the director of the Disney University, of all the Disney universities, it was a corporate position. He recounted to me a story when he was working on Jungle Cruise. So you mentioned Jungle Cruise. And as a, as a young cast member, he remembers Walt Disney coming down and riding on the, on the boats. And afterwards criticizing the skippers for not smiling. He said, we've invested so much money in the infrastructure and the hardware and the software and the bus and the audio animatronic animals and all this stuff. And he said, but every time I rode the boat today, when those hippos would jump out of the water, I was looking at you skippers. And even though the guests are screaming with delight and fright and the hippos are spraying water, you were acting nonchalant. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, another day, another hippo. I've seen this 5,000 times. And Walt was really upset. He said, you've got one week. I'm going to come back here, and I want you to smile. Relative to the infrastructure and the cost of this facility, how expensive is a smile? Stay engaged. You're the linchpin. You're that key experience that the guests are looking at in addition to the hardware and the ride itself. So that started from Walt himself, and then Van was the first one to say, I'm proud to say that we are selling pixie dust. You know, if you don't like working here, if you don't like smiling, you shouldn't be here. So he was very keen on getting the right people on board and then making sure that everybody from the top to the bottom of the organization, regardless of their title, lived Walt's dream of staying engaged. Yeah. And, you know, how many times have we gone to the park and it's been crowded and hot, but one cast member just is nice and gives you that pixie dust or that smile. And, and it just takes you out of how miserable you might have been feeling at that moment. And, exactly. you know, that, that happens every time I go to Disneyland and we hear that on the show. We talk about that amongst ourselves, but we hear it from our listeners or on the dis boards, um, you know, just how, how much the cast members really made their vacation special, you know, and, you know, you know, along with, you know, the attractions are attractions, but it's really right. the people that make the experience, you know, wonderful or not. Right. So, um, and it, it starts with the cast members. In fact, Walt and Van and Dick and all the, and Jim Corr and all these wonderfully brilliant visionaries knew that how you treat your cast members is how they're going to treat guests. So if you treat that custodian, if you treat that security host, if you treat that parking lot host, if you treat the food and beverage host with disdain, then how are they going to react when somebody comes up to them and says, what time is a three o'clock parade? They're going to roll their eyes and say, oh my gosh. So Van was absolutely in, in lockstep with Walt in that he he knew, in fact, one of the quotes that I have in the book is, is Van's quote that it takes a happy crew to produce a happy show. And you could have the best 
filming crew in the in the industry, but if the if the star of the show is dismissive of them, you know, it's not going to work too well. You got to all work together. So you have nice break areas backstage. You smile at each other backstage, and you say good morning. You say good afternoon. And he implored the the staff of the Disney University to give that kind of top-notch service to incoming trainees, whether they were new hires, whether it was a supervisory training class or an executive retreat where you're taking executives from the studio elsewhere to learn about other aspects of the business, is that Disney University absolutely had to reflect the idea of good show. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's not true. I remember one uh, one place I worked where we were going to try to, we were trying to change how people reacted to basically our customers, our clients. It was a school district, but right. you know, we were going to go that, that extra mile and do the extra thing and had to remember that these children and these parents were basically our customers. But we, and we had little taglines and all that that we were using to try to motivate ourselves. But what was very smart about this is we spent a year giving that kind of attitude and positiveness and extra hand to ourselves, to our colleagues first, and then rolled it out. Because if we didn't do that amongst ourselves, there was no way we were going to do it outside of ourselves. Right. So, And when you think about the investment in the university itself, that unto itself is a statement that we respect and value cast members. We respect mm-hmm. you enough that we're going to hire you, and before we throw you into the mix of this massively stressful, complex environment called a theme park, we are going to make sure you are prepared. And so one of the things that Jim Cora told me, and again, he reflects the values of Walt, of Van, and all these other great visionaries, Jim said, marketing is the time and money you spend to get people in the door whether it's guests or cast members, employees, etc. And he said, training, so marketing is the time and money you spend to get people in the door. Training is the investment you make to get guests to come back and cast members to stay because it creates loyalty. How brilliant is that? So many organizations put all their eggs in the marketing basket. They get guests to come in. They get employees to come in, and then they ignore them. They don't plus the show like Walt Disney would say. And I asked yeah, him and, one time, I said, mm-hmm. did you ever cut a training program? He said, I never cut a training program if it added to the show. And certainly, Van would be the first one, as would Jim, to say, we're not going to throw good money after bad. We're going to assess our programs constantly. But it's all about the show. And if it improves the show for our cast members, it will improve the show for our guests, and we'll move forward with it. Now, after Walt Disney passed, did Van have to adjust the content of his training sessions? Well, one of the things that, that Van was tasked to do, actually, by Roy Disney, was to create the Traditions program. Uh, Van was actually ready to roll out a whole different kind of orientation program, and then when Walt Disney passed away, they got together with Roy, and Roy basically said, look, we've got this this challenge now what are we going to do and van and his team at the university came up with the traditions program which is is in place all these years later and so yes of course over the years the the orientation program has evolved the training programs have evolved but essentially it's it's let's keep 
the history alive. Let's move forward. Let's not stay stuck in the past. But based on the traditions and based on that solid foundation, we can all move forward. And that keeps people focused, I think, on the values and the purpose of why the organization exists. Now, for some of our, our folks may not be familiar with traditions, because can you tell them a little about what is traditions? Well, certainly. Traditions is the name of the orientation program. It's become kind of a generic name for the new hire orientation, but traditions is the portion of the program that touches about touches upon the values and the history of the company, and it talks about examples, much like what I've been sharing already today, of, of Walt Disney walking the park and how everybody has to put on the show and nobody is above anybody else. Disneyland is the star, not the cast member, and those kinds of things. So traditions is really about basing your future on the past. And I think Marty Sklar put it brilliantly, and I'm sure that a lot of your listeners have heard Marty at, at D23 or have read his books. Brilliant guy, long career at the company. And he summed it up brilliantly. He said, Walt Disney had one foot in the past and one foot in the future. He knew the value of the legends and he knew the value of the, the history, but he also knew that you didn't want to hang out there. You had to always be pushing forward. And so I think what Van and his team at the university were able to do when Walt passed away was to focus not only on the traditions, but also on the task at hand to keep Disneyland up and running and relevant. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that then you, you joined Disney University, and so d- did you work closely with Van? Yes, he was a he was a, a senior statesman by that time, and I remember Van mm-hmm. participating in meetings, and sometimes I would just be blown out of my chair with some of the things that he would say, because I didn't really know who he was until I, I had more time there, but I'll never forget when I was in a program that was uh, really a, a prestigious program to be chosen to attend, but it was a, a internal Disneyland management intern program, and 20 or so of us got picked from all these different departments and divisions to participate in a six-month-long program, and we were kind of being handpicked to be the, the future leaders of the company, but that being said, I'll never forget when Van came in and gave a, a presentation to us and a lot of us were asking him about what was it like to work with Walt and what what kind of a person was he and what do you think Walt would say? What do you think Walt would do and where do you think Walt would want to take the company? And for, for a while, Van was answering very nicely in kind of an elderly statesman fashion. But then after a while, he just had this switch and it was kind of like the real Van came out and he said, you know, blankety blank, why don't you figure out what the company's supposed to be doing? Aren't you the, the future leaders of this company? <laughs> and that was the angry Donald Duck kind of lighting up. It's like, I don't know what Walt would do. Walt is no longer with us, but we're here in this room. We need to figure it out. So let's move forward. Let's get that foot in the future, not in the past. So now, now what kind of things did you do for Disney University? Well, when I was at Disneyland, my actually my very first job, when I finished undergraduate school and I had done some work at the Disney University, as I already mentioned, I went to graduate school in Japan. I speak fluent Japanese. And when I came back from Tokyo, the company had, had signed a contract with the Oriental Land Company to start Tokyo Disneyland construction. And so I was hired as an interpreter to help train the Japanese executives that were coming over and operations people that were coming over to learn how to run the first international theme park in Japan. And so they were in Anaheim and they were in Orlando for anywhere from six months to a year and a half 
learning every single day, every aspect of operations. And in the midst of that is when I was picked to move into the intern program. And I had always wanted to be a trainer and I was in the human resources division. And so they assigned me to be a trainer in the Disneyland University. So I got to work there for about a year, and then Jim Cora asked me to come to Japan with him and the startup team to uh, to get Tokyo Disneyland up and running. So I spent a few years over in Japan and worked as anybody would on a, on a startup on a variety of projects, whether it was getting housing for the expatriates or getting the university up and running or helping with with recruiting the 4,000 Japanese cast members we had to hire to run the park. And ultimately coming back, and then I was given an opportunity to move to the Disney Studios and be the head of the training team at the university there. So I decided to move up to the studios and see what the business world up there was like. So now now, now moving to Tokyo and starting up the park there and starting Disney University there, you know, there's, there must have been some cultural differences. How... Um, how did you sort of translate Van Francis' core philosophy and his four values to that culture in that park? Well, you know, that's interesting. Uh, Jim Cora was the head of the operations team going into Tokyo Disneyland. And when Jim was given that assignment, he had worked with Van on so many other projects over the years. He actually asked Van to put together a comprehensive booklet called The Spirit of Disneyland. And it was translated into Japanese, and it was given to all of these Oriental Land Company Japanese executives who were then going to be running the park. He actually, he and Dick Nunes and Van went to Japan before any dirt was really turned on the project, and Van gave a presentation about the university and about guest services and, and dealing with cast members and basically laying down the the, the rules of engagement, even for the Japanese. And Dick was very honest and blunt with Van saying, you're, you're an old guy, you know, you're going to be respected by the Japanese. So you're going to be our elder states on this, uh, on this initial trip and talking with some of these Japanese executives. But the idea was that, that, that happiness can be created in any culture. And yes, there are going to be some cultural differences, but when it gets right down to it, and, and talking to Jim Corey, he said that the Japanese, and I knew this from working with them in, as a student, is they are so other-centered and they are so concerned about putting on good show that really what Van and what we were teaching in the university almost comes second nature to the Japanese, whereas in France and in Hong Kong and Shanghai next year and in the U.S., sometimes it's a bit more of a struggle, but the Japanese inherently get it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, because I'm thinking it, cast member training must have changed over the years, especially as guests have changed. And um, it seems like guests are are a little more intolerant when, when, you know, attractions break down and things than they were uh, maybe a generation ago. So, I'll give you an example of of cultural differences. I mean, Van helped with the Tokyo Disneyland project, and then Jim asked him again for Disneyland Paris, previously known as Euro Disney, to do a version of the Spirit of Disneyland for the French cast members, and, and Van did that. And I was recently, oh, recently, maybe two years ago, I was in 
in Hawaii, and I went to the Aulani Resort, and I talked with some of the human resources people over there, and I asked them about, how did you train your cast members? Where is your Disney University? And they were very honest, and they said, well, we don't have enough cast members in human resources to have a separate university, but we were all trained in how to do that. And what was fascinating to me, Michael, is that in a three-day orientation program for cast members in Hawaii for the Aulani Resort, they had two days of operations training and traditions and the usual orientation stuff. And the third day of training was devoted exclusively to learning about Hawaiian culture. Because that's hmm. what the Aulani Resort is all about, is to be as true as possible to the Hawaiian culture. And even though these cast members are local Hawaiian folks, they may not know their own culture very well, at least not enough to convey it succinctly to visiting guests. So I think that's that's another example of, of Van's creative mind, is that we're not going to cookie-cutter every aspect of this. We're going to make sure that we are relevant. And if the Hawaiian group needs more cultural training, we're going to do that. If the Japanese need some extra time to learn that it's okay to get out and smile and goof around, we're going to do that. But I thought that was just a great example of we don't have a staff of Disney University trainers here in Hawaii, but we're still going to make it happen. And we're going to make sure our cast members are well-versed in Hawaiian culture. That was education personified. Yeah, definitely. And certainly the spirit of Walton Van in, in getting Absolutely. it done. <laughs> yeah. So now we've mentioned that you're the author of Disney U, how Disney University develops the world's most engaged, loyal, and customer-centric employees. And you write a great deal about Van France and Jim Cora in that book. Um, what inspired you to write the book? Honestly, because not very many people outside of uh, – a certain age group and geographic location at, in Anaheim, Disneyland, know about Van. And I felt that there was a need to give him his his credit. And the things that he created, certainly under the auspices and the guidance and the the, the support of Dick Nunes and, and Walt Disney, as we've already talked about, but Van is a brilliant, was a brilliant architect, and he deserved his moment. And it was a tremendously uh, satisfying project to work on this and hear so many people talk about Van in such glowing terms. And you also um, really go into his four values or four circumstances. And, um, but I really, as a teacher, I really like the way the book is organized because, well, for the Disney fan and all of us, there's a lot of examples and some good, um, sort of behind the scenes stories in there. And then, but th th everything always revolves around, every chapter then revolves around the four values and how they're sort of exemplified in the chapter. And then it asks, some probing questions that, that you can think about, you know, yourself and or your workplace or family or whatever in how um, how are you applying the four circumstances in this situation? So um, so for me, I, I, people might think by the title that this is just for the workplace or business executives. But I, I think you sort of intended this for a much wider audience. Most definitely. I wrote it for uh, any any reader, quite frankly, and I've worked with school-age kids that have read the book through college graduate courses, hospitals. Uh, I'm working with 
multiple school districts around the country right now of high school teachers, K through 12 teachers, executives in healthcare, executives in rocket science. And it's, it's interesting. You're, you're, you're so perceptive because the, the precepts and the ideas that Walt and Van and Dick and Jim and all these guys created are applicable anywhere. And I, I had one challenge in writing the book other than the, 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 the pressure of writing about such iconic figures as Walt and Van is that I wanted to make it fun and engaging, right? It's got to be innovate, support, educate, entertain. I had to, to live and breathe the four circumstances. And so I, I wrote each chapter, and actually I call them lessons. And I was determined to have 13 lessons because that was, uh, you know, 1313 Harbor Boulevard and, and right. some of the, uh, the, the urban legends around the number 13 in Walt and Van. But I wrap up each lesson with not only a review, but then what are you going to do with this information? And that's really what Van would do. It's like, well, this is interesting, but so what? What are we going to do with it? How is this going to, how is this going to manifest itself in real life on stage for our cast members? And what's the benefit of doing it? So I was always thinking of challenges that I would get from a, from a Jim Cora or a Van France or a Dick Nunes when I was writing this. Yes. So. I, I definitely recommend this book for anybody, no matter what you do or where you are in your life. Um, there's definitely something to be gained from it. Now, now Van will always be remembered as the founder and professor emeritus of Disney University, but he went on to perform many roles at Disneyland. He was the area manager of Tomorrowland. Um, he was the organizational chairman of the Disneyland Recreation Club and coordinator of the first Disneyland cast member magazine, um, Backstage Disney. So, which right. I didn't know. Uh, he, he did a lot more than just start University of Disneyland. And I, but from what you told me, I can't, how did he like being an area manager of Tomorrowland? I don't think he, I didn't know Van then, but knowing <laughs> him, and reading about him and talking to people that worked with him during those years is he was kind of a fish out of water, but that's what you did at Disneyland. You didn't say, no, Walt, I don't have an interest in doing that. You say, yes, by when do you want it done? It's, it's not no, because it's yes, if I can do it. Yes, I can do it. So Van was really more in his natural state when he was the uh, had his finger on the pulse of the culture and that's really mm -hmm. where his his uh strengths were and his brilliance shone through brightly now in in 1978 van retired from disney and became a special consultant to dick nunes who was then the executive vice president of Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Um, he also authored Old Dogs Can Learn New Tricks, a career guide for senior working adults. So, yep. so he, he, even after he retired, he kept, he kept busy. He also wrote he his wrote autobiography. The, the boss and I. He wrote what? He wrote about taking public transportation, the boss. I mean, he, he wrote all kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. Um, he wrote his autobiography, Window on Main Street, 35 right. Years of Creating Happiness at Disneyland Park. And I understand that's going to be re-released by well, Theme Park Well, that's, that's an interesting point. There, there's an effort, and, and Walt's, uh, excuse me, Van's daughters were very supportive when I was um, working on this book. And then after it came out, were thrilled. I sent them copies, and they gave it to, to grandkids, or so they'd be Van's great-grandkids. And Subsequent to all that, they would send me reams of information about Van, stuff that 
nobody's ever seen before. And my wife Pam and I were were lamenting that Window on Main Street was no longer in print, and there were all kinds of legal issues as to why that happened, and some tragedies as to who had passed away and who had legal rights to this and that. And long story short, we have been working with Van's family in an effort to get Window on Main Street um, bring bring life to it again. Let's put it that way. So there's there's no forthcoming announcement, but we're working very hard with some very influential people who we think have the horsepower to to get Window on Main Street or some form of it uh, reprinted. That would be great. So it, yeah. it, it'd be our way of getting to know Van. <laughs> so now Van also remained an active member of the Disneyland Golden Ears Club and the Disneyland Alumni Club. And he spoke on Disneyland history at conventions around the country. Um, Van was honored with a window on Main Street USA on April 26th, 1985. I guess he was known as the smoker um, because his windows located above the former Disneyland tobacco shop which today is the 20th century music shop. And his window reads, Van Arsdale, France, founder and professor emeritus, Disney Universities. And Van was named a Disney legend in 1994. So, And, and Van passed away on October 13th, 1999 in Newport Beach, California. So, so Doug, after knowing Van, working with him, studying him, is there one piece of wisdom or action of Van's that you always keep close to you? Yeah, I think that the first thing that comes to mind is he wouldn't take excuses. Very similar to Walt. It's um, really budgets, he would say budgets might be tight, but creativity is free. And I thought, mm-hmm. boy, how brilliant is that? And all that I talked to, all these executives when I was writing Disney U, said it's essentially the same thing. A, he could simplify the complex. And B, he got things done. I think because, and Jim Corr said this brilliantly, he said that Van was raised in industry during World War II, and you didn't have an option of not succeeding. You had to get the product out the door and you had to get the, the planes into the war theater or whatever the case might be. So Van taught a lot of people to think outside the box. In fact, Jack Lindquist, when I talked to him about Van, he said Van was his own box. He didn't think outside the box. He was just his own box. <laughs> but the, the, the essence of budgets might be tight, creativity is free, has stayed with me for years. And I challenge a lot of executives that are my clients around the world. Nobody comes to me and says, oh, we have way too much money and way too many people. What are we going to do? Everybody says I have a lack of, and you can fill in the blank. Well, Van wouldn't take that as an excuse. So what? Creativity is free. Get out and get it done. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. That's definitely one I'm going to remember, too. (laughs) So now, if you would like to learn more about Van France, his philosophy and Disney University, please consider reading Doug Lip's book, Disney U, How Disney University Develops the World's Most Engaged, Loyal and Customer Centric Employees. And Doug, what's the best way for our Dizzers to get a hold of your book? Well, online, of course, everybody knows Amazon. There's a there's a hardback version. There's also a Kindle version, uh, an audio version that comes to Kindle version. And also for those folks that are listening that are going to be attending D23, 
for the first time at the D23 Expo, the Walt Disney Archives is premiering what they call the Walt Disney Archives stage. And I'm pleased and honored to uh, join Jim Cora on stage on August 15th, uh, Saturday, August 15th at 11.30 to 12.30. And he and I are going to have a fireside chat, much like you and I are talking right now, Michael, about his work with Van and his work with Walt. And we're going to be selling the book there. It's going to be a fundraiser, and I'm donating 100% of the, the books to the Walt Disney Birthplace. And the Walt Disney Birthplace is going to have a booth there. And so if people are interested, if they're going to D23, they can they can buy the books at the Walt Disney Birthplace booth. But I also want your your listeners to know that my wife and I donate all of my author proceeds of Disney U when we sell at events like D23. In this case, it's not going to to my my charity, but when I sell at conferences where I speak, we donate all of our proceeds to an organization devoted to helping folks with mental illness in our country. It's an organization called National Alliance on Mental Illness, also known as NAMI. And we're passionate that we need to help uh, the folks that are faced with uh, mental health issues. And so we donate all of our proceeds to that organization. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, that's very generous. And so we can support those organizations by purchasing your book. So that's well, wonderful. Definitely. Now, if folks would like to get in touch with you, um, what are what's the best way? Some My of the ways uh, website is uh, www.douglip.com. That's with two P's. And my Twitter handle is at DougLip. And the hashtag for DisneyU is hashtag DisneyU, capital U, right after Disney. So they can get to me through Twitter. They can get to me through my through my website. And I will also give you my email. If people want to email me directly, let's go that route. It's Doug at DougLip.com. Send me an email. I'd be happy to chat with you. Wonderful. And we will have links to all of those in our show notes. Wonderful. So, Doug, Doug, thank you for sharing your memories of Van France with us on the Dis Unplugged Disneyland edition. This is this Thanks, was, this been was, a real it pleasure great, chatting it with you. And... Thank you. And it was it was nice to know Van France to get to know him through you. So well, he was he was quite could, a unique individual. It it sounds like it. <laughs> And that concludes this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Please listen to our other segments this week. Thank you for listening. And I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by Walt Disney. Thank you. 